0: Yeah. <laughs> Hi, my name is Ben, and welcome to Field and Foley episode 6. Today, Nathan Moody joins us, who is a multi talented composer, musician, and sound designer who specializes in creating immersive worlds through sound. Whether he's crafting soundtracks for games or his own albums, Nathan is a master of using a variety of instruments and sound sources to build rich, evocative sonic landscapes. He's released over 20 solo albums, showcasing his unique blend of synthesized and organic sounds. But that's not all. Nathan is also an accomplished live performer, mastering engineer, and an interactive audio uh, designer at the legendary Skywalker Sound. I'm thrilled to have him on the show today to share his insights into the art of sound recording and design. So, Nathan, uh, thank you for taking the time.
1: Absolutely, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, first of all, let me (laughs) get in there that I I probably didn't get anything in that intro because you're a man of many interests and talents, I would say. Is that right?
1: Uh, it, it keeps me off the streets and out of trouble, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I see. So, yeah, my my first question to you would be, um, how did you come to explore so many different uh, avenues? I mean, especially f- for sound, not just games, also music, also anything in between performing, engineering. Um, did it just evolve naturally out of interest or did it's, was audio always like your passion and you just explored everything there is? <laughs> I
1: I I think a lot of it's just driven by what motivates me as a person throughout my entire life which is just having a restless mind and always being interested in learning and always wanting to be challenged. So uh it's you know my very very first audio memory is sitting on my father's lap while he played guitar and I sang horribly as most three-year-olds do, uh, into a reel-to-reel recorder. And hearing my own voice and my dad's guitar playing played back, uh, that was a really formative, and still is a very formative memory for me. And ever since then, I grew up uh, playing instruments uh, and then I went into several career cycles where audio was always something I did as part of my jobs, but it wasn't my full-time job. And it got to the point where I was doing sound design and, uh, sound integration for interactive installations at a, uh, at an agency that I co helped co-found. But, uh, when I left that world, I stepped back and kind of, Asked myself, I've I've done all these bizarre things, and I've had a very nonlinear career path. And what w- was there anything consistent across all those all those careers and jobs? And sound wound up being the one consistent thing. So I decided to spend what working years I had remaining, uh, dedicating uh, the rest of my working life to sound, and that in and of itself has led me to still be kind of a generalist with a few very uh, vertical, deep uh, areas of specialty, such as mastering. Uh, and so I think that I just love the the discipline of sound and audio so much uh, because I, I'm the kind of person that doesn't believe that there are any boundaries between sound art, sound design, composition, music concrete, I think it's all the same thing, and so I really enjoy doing projects where I'm hired to do a certain function, but how I execute that job function is influenced by uh, everything that I do and uh, different sub disciplines uh, of sound
0: oh that's very interesting that also gives me hope that I can uh, branch out some more because um, yeah, in the, in the beginning I, I thought. If you're a sound designer, you're a sound designer, and you're definitely not not a composer. But as you just also said, it's like there are no clear boundaries, and it's it's better to open yourself up to um, be as fluid as possible and just try stuff you you like and see, um, yeah, what what feels good and what uh, brings something interesting to the table. So I can totally relate to that uh, whole openness because it's just started for me as well from to opening up in different areas, and it's. It's fun and exciting and uh, yeah, so hopefully in a, in a few years I can also have like at least a half as impressive a, a bio as you have. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I, I think a lot of it
1: though has to do with getting enough experience both in life and in work. This sounds so strange to mm-hmm. say, but to, to get enough experience where you're, you're comfortable giving yourself permission to form your own philosophies as to how you want to structure your career and in fact, how you engage with the discipline at all. And it took me decades to finally uh, kind of give myself permission to, to believe certain things. Like I believe that designing ambiences for a game or a film, that is scoring with diegetic sound.
0: Mm -hmm. instead
1: of music. Uh, I believe that there is no difference between arranging tones and timers in time and space and music composition. I think they are the same thing. Um, And I think that at the end of the day, all all, all, all that any of us are trying to do is to evoke something in a listener. And so I think that the only difference in... If that's the outcome, then the only difference in what any of us do is just the format of our deliverables
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the palettes we choose to bring to bear on the problems we're trying to solve.
0: That's very interesting that I also hear that from you because I had uh, Emily Mio on, on the other night and she also was talking about, uh, through her background of of learning composition first, she later in sound design um, came to the conclusion that designing like a for example a, a weapon sound is just like composing a, a piece of music or a part of the instrument because you have different frequencies you have different layers and you arrange them to fit and you mix them just like you do music and at the end it's it's arranging and she can like take from her composing experience into sound design and also the other way around. So um, yeah that is really I, I would say pretty new for me and I hope we can we can give that to other people as well as a as a thought to, open themselves up a bit more about what audio uh, fields are and that they are not as rigid as we might think.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And you also mentioned, um, um, which is really cool, because I always ask my guests, why did you record your first sound and what was it? And I think you already answered that uh, when you were very <laughs> little. You recorded yourself and your dad, um, which is really cool. That that means like from around three-year-olds, you, you started to record. Um, did you continue with that? Um, was it like the first spark that set it all in motion? Or was was it just like uh, here and there by accident and then you just picked it up later again?
1: I wish I could say there was the continuous perfect through line <laughs> of that started it all and I never varied from that path. <laughs> and that would be a complete lie. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: of course. Uh, the uh, The reality is that I wee- I've we i always weaved in and out between music and Capital S sound. And uh, I went through periods where I was very, very serious about learning certain instruments like the saxophone and guitar. And then uh, when I was a little bit older, maybe right before high school, I started doing um, collages on cassette from things I would record on the radio. Mm-hmm. So I had a dual cassette deck and I was, you know, just doing basically really messy, horrible punch edits in and out <laughs> to create these sound collages, which I, I I made in order to be funny and trade them with my friends and we'd all laugh about the juxtaposition of this sound versus that sound or this phrase versus that phrase. And so that was my first experience really arranging, collaging, and editing uh, was just on dual cassette decks. And then um, I wound up doing a barter Uh, kind of a trade with the California Recording Institute and I took a class there on being a recording engineer and being in the studio with a uh, 24-track two-inch tape machine and a console and that was when I realized the tools are great and this is incredibly dynamic and interesting but I never want to be a recording engineer (laughs) (laughs) and realize that you know Uh, Being on the other side of the glass, farther downstream from the production side of things, more in post-production, was something that was much more comfortable for me. Um, And it was only over time that I started picking up field recording as a hobby, much like some people pick up photography as a hobby. And so that got me much more comfortable uh, recording spontaneously, recording with forethought and planning, Uh, really understanding through experience uh, what microphones worked in what circumstances on what material. And so ultimately all of that stuff started funneling me into sound design. And since I was working with interactive installations, probably for about 10 or 12 years, I was creating sound for software. It just wasn't in a strictly kind of games context. And so when I started to think about pivoting into game audio or into audio in general, I realized game audio was much more familiar to me because I know the software development process inside and out. And I'm actually more comfortable with that than the workflows in and around film. Mm, So that mm -hmm. felt like a really good fit for me. um, And that's what I've been doing for the last several years now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that because it's uh, also for me, the, the interactivity and the non-linearity of, of games is always inspiring to me because, um, yeah, you not don't build a sound that is heard once or twice during a movie, you build it that is probably heard hundreds of times in different contexts and different reverbs and stuff like that, so it's always interesting to create something and uh, I feel it's much more connected to the other parts of the production because... Um, as I heard, I, I didn't work with big films, but um, normally you probably are not on set as a sound designer and uh, yeah, throw your ideas back and forth about how something should work, how something should sound. But uh, especially in indie production, I found that it's, it's great to feed off each other. And sometimes I create a sound and someone draws something from it or sometimes an artist does something and then I'll, uh, I'll add a sound on top of that and then we in- inspire each other. And I really like that kind of uh, interactivity between creative persons.
1: Oh, I could not agree more. Uh, I think one of the things that makes me enjoy games is the fact that it is uh, an inherently really collaborative medium. And you get to interact with members of all other departments at various times. And I find that just endlessly inspiring. If If it wasn't for games, and game projects where I had to ask a level designers questions, I wouldn't know Mm -hmm. unreal blueprints. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, if it wasn't a game project where I was working on voiceover or dialogue, I, I would have an opportunity to work with the narrative designers and talk about story beats and pregnant pauses and the flow of dialogue as it pertains to the relationship of characters, which might be changing over the story arc and, uh, those kinds of, discussions, if you're a sound supervisor on a film, uh, I think you have a lot more access directly to the director where some of those conversations can happen. But if you're more in the trenches or below the line, as they say, I think that, uh, mm-hmm. those kinds of interactions are, are a little, little less frequent.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, talking a bit more about your, your work in, um, maybe not just game audio, but but yeah, that's your recent work, so maybe um, most of the game audio. Um, How and when do you incorporate field and foley recording in your sound design work? Is it like an everyday tool, or is it like uh, you have it for specific things, uh, if it inspires you or something?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I, I suppose I use field recording as often as I can within the constraints of scope and schedule on a project. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's just no time and you've got to open the library and go for it. But I think a lot of us who are practitioners in this field understand that sometimes it's actually just faster (laughs) to pick up a microphone and just record something quickly uh, rather than spending time uh, iterating through a large sound effects library, looking for just the right thing, maybe not finding it and having to throw a mic up on a stand anyway. So I, I'm in my studio as we speak right now and I've got, I'm going to do a quick count here. I've got about five microphones total on stands in my studio ready to record at any time. Uh, Everything from a stereo pair to a large condenser mic, which I'm using right now for the interview to a mid side rig. And it's just so that if I need something really quick, I can just Stub something in that's a fresh original recording, and the barrier uh, to doing that is kept as low as possible. Um, one of the things I've realized about myself as as a creative professional is I'm 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 big on immediacy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So when I used to play the saxophone, I'd have a melodic idea, and then I would have to sit with a reed in my mouth for ten minutes before <laughs> I could act upon that melodic idea. and Hopefully I remembered what it was 10 minutes later. And um, so the guitar was much better for me. I grew up actually painting uh, in oils when I, was a, when I was a child. And when I went to college, I switched to watercolors because mm-hmm. watercolors actually dry, unlike <laughs> oils, which often just never dry. And so for me, my recording practice is largely based on immediacy and removing those barriers to recording anything at any time. Uh, And I find, as we were speaking earlier, um, the difference to me between diegetic and non-diegetic sounds, the difference between something coming from a synthesizer versus coming from a field recording, um, to me, that's all fairly immaterial. And what really matters to me is the evocative vibe that comes off of whatever that sound is. And to me, that's what the right sound is. Um, and I think a, a lot of practitioners are, are probably the same, but I, I try to go through my practice not really sweating those details that much.
0: Yeah, that's uh, absolutely true for me as well. I, I also try to always advocate for... Um, recording your own sounds and using, as, or, I, or I try to use as few library sounds as possible. Maybe in the instances of uh, explosions or big fires, because my family doesn't let me do that on the premise. <laughs> <laughs> but and it's also safety risk, of course. But yeah. Um, but otherwise, I try to use it also a bit as a yeah, getting away from your computer and your studio and maybe going out recording something. That connection to nature and that. C- like crafting something, it feels to me it feels a lot more like crafting something when I record something and then processes uh, process it um, instead of um, yeah sitting in the studio and crafting it. But as you said, m- sometimes there's no time or sometimes you don't need anything overly specific and can yeah can use library sounds as well. Um, but yeah, also for me the immediacy is um, for me <laughs> the immediacy means I have a packed bag with. Um, underwater microphones, contact microphones, and a couple of others that I always take. So when I want mm. to go out and I have some ideas, I can just put on the backpack and um, yeah, throw it in the car and drive somewhere or go out in, in the woods. And um, yeah, I, I found more and more that that's definitely the direction I want to go. And that's also why I started this podcast, to see what other people are out there and how and why they are using feed recording and Foley. And I, I've gotten that answer from everyone I talk to. Um, it's oftentimes very much quicker to just record something than find it. And you really have to like do it a couple of times to completely understand it because for outside persons, when you talk to them, it's always like, it, it hasn't everything been recorded yet. It's just like every photo has been taken. Yeah, but trying to find that is is a different beast. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And I think that one of the exciting things about field recording are, I find that there are two types of field recording outings. There are the field recording sessions that are basically sessions of opportunity. You don't know what you're going to find, so you bring an audio go bag, basically, mm-hmm. and you. And part of the excitement is, what can I find? Uh, what am I going to hear that's interesting? And it's like taking a camera with you while you walk around a city. You don't know what you're gonna f- find, and you're waiting for those moments of serendipity to capture something very evocative. And then that's very different than planning a field recording trip to record something very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's negotiating access to a specific location or going out to record a specific object or environment. And I find the, the two are very, very different. Um, the field recording sessions that are just kind of opportunity, sound safari kind of uh, outings, those can be really fun because you might start trying to record one thing. Another sound overwhelms the soundscape and you have the opportunity rather than get frustrated say, oh, I'm recording that thing now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah. and so you can pivot. And I think that that, that uh, freedom and flexibility is really wonderful. Uh, which is definitely different than going out, trying to record a very specific thing and then something else overwhelms the landscape and then you have to hold for a plane or whatever it is because that's not what you want to record. Um, so I find that those serendipitous outings uh, can be really rewarding and really fun as long as you uh, promise yourself to stay flexible.
0: Yeah, especially planes. That's my my swan enemy. Um, and <laughs> adding onto that, um, for, for doing sound work in general for you is Is there a lot of experimenting and and letting it happen just like like we just um, talked about? Or is it mostly, you have already something in your mind you're trying to record and then you try to get it either in the studio or outside? Or do you do a lot of, um, yeah, let's just see what comes and then decide where to use it?
1: Uh, I do a lot of both. Um, uh, I've been doing some experiments here in my own home because it's 2023 and we've had one of the stormiest years on record here in, in Northern California. Mm. And so I don't know what high winds in my attic sounds like. So yeah. let's throw some mics up there and see what happens. I don't know what it's going to sound like uh, having a five meter long stretched spring outside during a storm. Let's slap a uh, contact microphone on it and record and see what happens. And so I think a lot of it is... It is constant experimentation, but I think the most important thing is just to always do that practice without expectations. And that's when a lot of the the happiest of accidents happen. One of my favorite quotes about creativity is from uh, Karen Blixen, uh, who wrote under the pseudonym uh, Isaac Dennison. So she wrote Out of Africa and other novels. And her phrase about a daily creative practice, which I always find really inspiring is create a little bit every day without hope and without despair. Mm -hmm. And to me that really exemplifies that feeling of, I'm going to put the repetitions in, I'm going to build my creative muscles. I'm not going to hope that anything I ever record will be usable on any project or useful to anybody. But when they are, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so when you open yourself up to that kind of constant daily creative practice and constant experimentation, it often doesn't work out. You mentioned one of your other guests, Emily Mayo, mm-hmm. she's been recording a sound every day for over a thousand days without mm-hmm. stopping. And that's wonderful. That's her getting her daily uh, practice in. And I think that that's really vital to anyone who wants to be successful. I think in any creative industry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's also we talked also about that, and um, that's also what I always hear, and it always comes back to the yeah, just do the work, put the hours in, and um, especially yeah, like you just mentioned, enjoy the work and the process, and not the the thing that comes maybe out of that. Um, but yeah, going um, back to when you have a situation where you need to do something specific or do, do a certain sound. Um, do you feel like um, the, the practice helped you then to achieve that in that moment? Or is it also uh, maybe sometimes like a chore and trying to experiment until you find that thing that you need right now for that project?
1: <laughs> oh, it can be both for, for sure. I think that the constant experimentation and recordings of opportunity that prepares you for when you do need to go do something very specific. So in years and years of field recording uh, and doing nature ambiences, I knew that when I negotiated access to our World War II freighter as a recording location, I knew that there were going to be certain areas of the ship that I was going to use uh, mid-side recording setup on mm-hmm. and other areas I was going to do quad uh, double O-R-T-F. Recordings, And that knowledge wasn't because I've recorded on World War II Freighters all the time. <laughs> it's because I've just experimented with these setups enough that I know what to expect. And, mm-hmm. you know, so much of it also comes down to designing with the end in mind. So if I want something that is going to be really central, but I, I want it in stereo, mid-side is really natural uh, in terms of a, a good Fit in terms of recording format, but if I need something that really needs to be ambient and wide, especially if dialogue is going to be delivered in and around it in a mix, mm-hmm. then I much prefer ORTF, which has a much more diffuse central image and a much wider spread while still having really solid phase correlation. So you start to, uh, through this practice and using your own sounds yourself that you record. You start to develop uh, a shorthand for for those kinds of things and understand when certain microphone designs or styles will work in in what situations, especially as it pertains to things like contact mics and hydrophones and things that are are not just your standard dynamic or condenser mics.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, so so you develop an ear, so to say, just like the photographer develops an eye for something, and. Um you have that that background of technology to know what to bring and how to tackle it. And then, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, but one of the wonderful things is that it's sound and it's in the field. So you're always, at some point you're going to be wrong. You're going to guess <laughs> yes, wrong. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's of course where most of the great learning comes from is, <laughs> um, you know, making the wrong choice and then just being uh, self-reflective on your own practice and asking yourself, why didn't that work? Why isn't mm-hmm. this gluing together or why does it feel diffuse where I want it to be specific. Why do the transients feel mushy instead of punchy? And so you start to look back at the uh, that all you have to look back at all the decisions you made to get to that recording and then tick off each of those decisions one at a time and ask yourself, was that the right or wrong decision? Um and you know, obviously there's there's no right or wrong in art. It's all it's all <laughs> of course, yeah. you know, shades of appropriateness. Um, And uh, so I think that it's also important to remember that the best recorder is always the one that you have with you. The best microphone is the one you're using at that time. And the best recording that you get is the best that you could have done under the circumstances. And so I think it's important to always uh, uh, apply some kindness to yourself. uh, If something doesn't uh, go the way you want it to. um, And just put that in your quiver of tools for the next time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's also something I've uh, hopefully learned over the last few years is to accept and and embrace failure because it always teaches you something. And just like you said, I have some recordings that I wished I had something else there, but I'm glad I got like the sound and I I, I, I could use it, could have used it and, uh, or, or used it. And I also learned something for next time. So yeah, that's, Maybe be kind to yourself is is, is a very good advice.
1: <laughs> oh, how many times have I recorded using, say, uh, a contact microphone, and uh, I didn't secure the cable, and so the cable is whacking in the oh, wind, yes. and you know that that sound of a very thin audio cable is very distinctive. I have used that recording of a whacked around audio cable so many times <laughs> as like a as like a transient sweetener or or whatever. And so like, you just never know these, these things that don't go well, you're working on some other project and you're like, wait a minute, six months ago, I really screwed up. That yeah. sound would be perfect here. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no so such
0: thing as a shitty recording. It's always no. useful for something.
1: <laughs> Absolutely true. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, I'm maybe switching topics a bit because um, that's an area I really want to ask you some some questions about. Is um, first of all, what inspired you to build your own instruments? Because I saw some stuff in your live performances that were, I I would ca- just say interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty non-committal word, Ben.
0: Okay, uh, let me let me rephrase that not just interesting but <laughs> evocative and also inspiring because i'm i'm now definitely going to get myself a, a cello bow or something like that and build some kind of noise machine because um i've not only seen you use that on some of your instruments but also um, emily i think from one of your daily recordings and uh, yeah it's every time i see it i think like why didn't i get something like that and yeah now i finally will
1: <laughs> well i for me it came from enjoying bands that used unusual instruments or used extended technique and mm-hmm. realizing that how an instrument is meant to be played, once my kind of high school brain realized that you can play a guitar with drumsticks like Sonic Youth used to, mm-hmm. or you can uh, play a soil compacting machine like in the Neubauten has mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, I think that was one of those big moments for me was high school when I started to get into more avant-garde, no wave and, uh, experimental and industrial music that I started to realize it's all just sound and it doesn't matter how you create the sound. And you have to think really in a postmodern way, looking at an instrument and really look at it as an object more than an instrument. And that's when some really fun things can happen. And so, um, That led me to want to play my instruments that way. But I I don't want to destroy my guitar or electric bass by whacking it with a uh, with a drumstick all the time. And so I started doing some research and uh, got a book by a gentleman named Bart Hopkins, who was a pretty well-known American experimental musician and instrument maker. And he had a really simple, wonderful book on acoustic instrument design. And so I created what was uh, called a a diddly bow, which bow diddly actually is named for. Mm -hmm. And it is just basically a plank with a couple of screws on one screw on each end and a length of wire strung between the two screws. That's it. And then you could pluck it or bow it, and then you can use your finger or a glass slide uh, Mm -hmm. to change its pitch. So I built one, and I was like, wow, that took no skill on my part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I could do a whole bunch of stuff with this. So I'm like, okay, well, let's put contact mics on it. Let's use a guitar string instead of just musical piano wire. Oh, now let's build one with active pickups and uh, and an electric bass low low B string. Uh, Oh, now let's build a four-string Koto. Let's build a dulcimer. Let's build just a box covered in stretched springs. And so it kind of compounded and compounded until I literally ran out of room in my garage. (laughs) And um, that became the basis for an album I made using nothing but those instruments uh, called The Right Side of Mystery. Um, That's when I learned that you can actually make a drum out of packing tape, which was fun. (laughs) Um, And uh, that has actually remained part of my practice uh, ever since then. It's been about five or six years since that album came out and um, so I, I still really enjoy building things that have truly unique timbres and uh, you know, part of the joy of building your own instruments is that if you're playing it poorly, no one will ever know.
0: <laughs> that's, that's perfect, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, as I said I just found out about your music because you sent me some stuff and then I went deep down the rabbit hole and listened to uh, almost all of your library already, and it's, it's wow. Yeah, I, I just I not uh, It was so interesting,
1: really. If, if blurry vision occurs, discontinue use.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to, of course, make some make some breaks in between, um, but uh, so many interesting textures and, and stuff like that. And one thing I, um, especially about those instruments, one thing I wondered was how how are ideas formed for you for new music? Do you start with like an instrument or an idea? Um, and build the instrument from there? So is the idea first, mm-hmm. the instrument first, or is it just like a whatever comes first?
1: I think most creative audio people will say uh, it comes from both directions at various times. Uh, sometimes all you need is just a sound, and that winds up being the springboard for a track or an entire album or a concept. Sometimes it is through the construction of something, and maybe you do or don't know uh, the outcome of that. And that is part of the joy is the un- is the not knowing of how will this turn out? How will this be useful? It seems like an interesting idea. Um, and, you know, how it turns out is c- kind of secondary to just simply doing it. Um, so, So it really varies. I think that sometimes I do build things with very specific purposes. Uh, Needing to find ways to use uh, reclaimed materials to create percussion sounds was a need I had on a project. Uh, And I just applied the recycled or uh, upcycled material uh, idea as a creative constraint. Uh, Also to keep the cost down, because if you... Are building things out of reclaimed materials, and it doesn't turn out well. You've spent maybe five dollars, mm, and yeah. so <laughs> there's there's no the uh, the the penalty for failure is basically zero, and that's how you can really try something, fail, and go, oh, okay, no big deal. That one didn't work out. Let's let's try it again. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't work out. I have a big metal. C stand or century stand in my garage Uh, and for the last two years it's had a huge plate of thin cold rolled steel hung from it and I thought I was going to use that uh, kind of as my own homemade plate reverb and that really didn't work out and then I tried to bow it and it made some cool sounds but it was utterly not musical in any way but that's okay I recorded what I could and use that in a couple of projects that I've worked on and um and it's still in there. <laughs> it's still <laughs> hanging in my garage, much to my wife's dismay. And um but it's still there because it's like I there's something else waiting to be done with it. And I just don't know what that is yet. So you know that that joy of of experimenting and just the sense of play, frankly, is 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 a big thing for me. I I've had a lot of people describe my work saying that it can be dark uh, in terms of tone and emotional content, but that they feel like there was still in in the recording they can hear a lot of joy in its making mm-hmm. and i that was that almost drove me to tears when i someone told me that because I'm like that's exactly how I feel when i'm doing it is that it the end result may be um, bleak or desolate sonically, but uh, there's so much joy happening when i'm composing or performing or assembling pieces like that and uh and i've i i hope that that comes through but that's that's for the listener to decide
0: yeah i can i can definitely definitely test to that um especially what, what for me was interesting is that um your newest album that you sent me a download code for it um, i think it should be out by by the time this podcast goes live um avast on welcome uh in the, I think it was the last or not the second to last track, um, Outwards from the Eye, there's percussion starting somewhere in the middle that builds and builds and those kind of moments really like always, uh, I was always surprised that those kinds of moments are in there because in the beginning it's like, okay, you think there's, it's an ambient album with some dark overtones and interesting instruments, ideas. But then you have different elements that you that you don't really expect, and um, yeah, especially about the percussion and outwards from the eye. Can you talk a little bit about that, maybe, if you remember what you what you used and or why you did, why you did decide to add something like that, like building something like that on top of that?
1: Sure, I for for I think positive artistic reasons and for very negative commercial reasons, <laughs> I love having my work be unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So so some, so I love having my listeners not be able to expect what the next album might be. It uh, might be completely music concrete played by the wind. It might be Mm -hmm. all entirely made by a modular synthesizer or like a vast unknown. It could be made uh, almost entirely through metallic objects. And I like to do that in Within a certain piece as well, um, and you know, I think one of the biggest creative challenges to anyone, I think, is how do you do the unpredictable, with it, but still have it fit in context. And so for me, percussion is often one of those things um, that I rely on to to be unpredictable because a lot of my work typically doesn't have percussion. Yeah, and part of that is. Part of that is purposeful. I find that when I start composing with rhythms first, I wind up immediately relying on all of my old compositional crutches and all of my music starts to sound the same. And so I usually put percussion in uh, much later after the bones of the composition uh, are laid out. And what often happens is that then I wind up filling up the sonic and rhythmic spectra and there's no room for percussion anymore. Um, and so, on a vast unknown, I tried to leave a fair amount of negative space for percussion to still happen. Um, and so, uh, for me, on that uh, track you're mentioning, Outwards from the Eye, I just felt like I wanted there to be a journey that started dark and ended in a lighter place. And so, for me, having a, even though the, the percussion was, heavy and kind of industrial in tone, it felt like it, it added kind of a, a movement to the last uh, movement. <laughs> and uh, and that, that felt appropriate to me at the time. And that's all um, from recording sessions, actually, that I alluded to earlier, uh, recording on a World War II freighter. So all of the percussion in that song are the sounds of metallic bulkhead hatches uh, being actuated, opened, and closed.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I was I was trying to think of what could ha- what what you could have used, but I would have never guessed that this was the case. <laughs> of course, um, but yeah, that's that's always interesting if you have something really specific. That um, yeah, if no one asks you about it, it's 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 just percussion, but great percussion. But if you start asking and digging the hole, you <laughs> you get some really interesting answers there. That's cool. Um, yeah. Um, Maybe also talking about the recording stuff, um, especially like for, for sound design. What's your take on um, trying to create some more, I would say, realistic sound gaps? Um, and what I mean by that is, for example, we are all used to those over-exaggerated uh, sword sounds and swoosh sounds. And um, mm. when I first started out, of course, I thought... Uh, most of the sounds were like the real ones and then I swung a sword and I was very disappointed (laughs) (laughs) and uh, (laughs) started to swing like a branch and thought like okay that's interesting and and got it more and more into this ah yeah that's how it's supposed to sound like but in in recent times I try to steer at least a bit into less over the top and less expected sounds um, which is a bit uh, difficult sometimes because of course, clients and also like the, the customer expect some kind of sonic landscape, and you have to deliver something. But um, yeah, maybe you you have a take on that. Maybe is is for you. Is it whatever works is nice, if it's realistic or not. Or do you also think um, we could go with a bit more down to earth stuff, or can use it in a creative way?
1: Well, I think that really depends on the story you're trying to tell, and. I think that what story you're trying to tell often will determine how you might skew realistic versus expressionistic. Um, I think of a lot of the sound work done by Peter Albrechtson as being very expressionistic. Uh, And certainly, you know, his work follows the picture and the films that he works on are sonically really rich but uh, a lot of the decisions he makes are kind of out there <laughs> and some of the sound sources he uses are are really unexpected and i think that can play in two ways it can play to the the scene diegesis of the of the the film or the game or it can Speak to the inner turmoil or mental state of the characters. And I think that how you make those decisions uh, is going to, uh, is clearly going to impact your sonic choices that you make. I worked on a horror game a couple of years ago, a little indie horror game. And I started by doing pretty realistic sci fi kind of ambiences and stuff like that. And, but where we wound up, at was completely weird, bizarre, distant, washed out synth soundscapes mm-hmm. that were treated and mixed with real sounds enough that it seemed like it all felt like wind blowing through tunnels of steel. But there was almost no realistic background at all, um, you know. And we would we would use realistic uh, emitters and one shots uh, to certainly ground everything in reality. But just to unnerve the player, uh, we wound up going in a direction that was entirely, almost entirely synthetic, but really felt appropriate. Uh, The direction you take is just informed by the story you're trying to tell. And sometimes that story is about a character or a mood more than the actual location that you're trying to uh, paint sound around. Yeah, that's
0: that's interesting. And um, yeah, looking forward to hopefully working on a horror project um, someday, because that's always that's always been uh, on my bucket list and I hope I get to do that. And uh, yeah, with that, I also think it's very interesting if you can mix in some sounds, uh, just like you said, that are not really um, distinguishable, where you're like, OK, I have some sort of humming, but I've never heard that before. And it's strange and it makes me like eerie and something like that. Um, on the project I'm working right now, it's uh, Call of the Is the name? is, It's a '90s style RPG, and I'm trying to uh, record every ambience myself um, because mm. I'm recording it with a with a special microphone. Um, it's called the Copperphone. It's from from a guy in Texas, Placid Audio. They they make those really interesting. They sound like almost '50s microphones, yeah. but also very high definition. So it's a very nice mix. And I mix those in with um, with other microphones, so I have like a blend of. Not really old school, but it has this that kind of touch. And then I try to set everything that's unnatural, like magic or like like the intense moments, apart by recording that with normal microphones and maybe even using some unnatural sounds. And mm. I found it, yeah, that's that's why I why I came to this question because I found that really interesting to create that divide be- between realistic uh, nature sounds and bird sounds and st- stuff like that. And then those like everything that's magic in this world sounds just very high def and um, has a clear contrast to the other. So, yeah, it's probably always the artistic decision should probably always be the one to guide you there and not like, yeah, you, you're trying to create something realistic or unrealistic.
1: Yeah. No, I love where you're going with that because I think a lot of us talk about mixing and cohesion and do things blend and contrast is radically uh, uh, underappreciated, I think. And so I love the idea of contrasting, quote unquote fidelity, mm-hmm. um, uh, is, is really wonderful. I'm right now playing the game Somerville, um, which is by a bunch of ex-Playdead uh, folks. And they've got a really wonderful contrast between very, actually quite calming, diegetic, natural sounds, and very synthetic, threatening alien sounds. And I think the use of contrast in that game is really phenomenal. Um, but I like the idea of fidelity or even, uh, I don't think I've seen this done maybe outside of Tron, but the idea of playing with um, actual bit depth as uh, as a method of contrast is an interesting one too. So, I, And contrast, I think, fuels a lot of my work. Like I love the extremes. I, I love the most gorgeous, beautiful, ambient music. And I love the most dark, loud, aggressive music. And, uh, and so I think that the, uh, gra- I always gravitate towards the mixing of extremes, um, light and dark, loud and quiet, uh, in terms of being a, uh, a consumer of media. And, um, uh, and I think that that winds up, uh, informing a lot of my work too.
0: Yeah. That's the same for me. I'm, I'm listening to I would say all kinds of music. And there are so many, especially nowadays, so many new artists that try to do something very different or try to do contrasting work. Um, like, for example, Igor, I don't know if you know. Oh, yeah. Um, that's It's like a blend of, I, I can't even describe it because it has <laughs> jazz elements in there and then the heavy metal or death metal screams and growling and all mixed together in something that shouldn't work, but it works. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so many interesting things coming up and that really um, show that there are no rules as long as you just yep. do what you love, you can create something. Yep. And, and uh, as a,
1: it's funny you, you mentioned uh, Igor. I, I, I think that there is, there's also space for us to study lessons in contrast that are a little less extreme too. Uh, one of the albums that I listen to to calibrate my ears is uh, by Beck, and it's his album Mm. Morning Phase. And it's kind of a folk album in a lot of ways, and that's not my native genre. I actually don't listen to it for pleasure. I listen to it to calibrate my ears and uh, to remind myself where the deficiencies of my room and my monitoring system are, because it's just an amazingly engineered album. But what's interesting about that in terms of contrasts is you listen to it, and it all sounds very cohesive. It's all very beautiful and calming, but sonically it's a folk album mixed with the aesthetics of hip hop.
0: Mm, Okay. I And,
1: and so if you listen to the bass and the, and the drums, which are calm and they're reserved, the low end of that album is insane (laughs) for, for what's ostensibly a folk album. Um, And so when you hear something that might even feel squarely in a genre, but there's something a little bit off, um, it's always worth really analyzing that and say it's off how, mm-hmm. and is that a good contrast? You know, is you know how purposeful was it? Um, was it a purposeful contrast to hit home a certain point, or just give that that track or that artist a certain voice, um, or does it feel uh, incongruous? And uh, you know, I think that as creators, I think most of us love straddling that line. And of course, the risk is we might think it's cool, <laughs> but it, it's only ever judged in the ears of of the listener. And so, um, so you, you just have to make your choices with intention. And I think as long as you're doing something with great intention, um, the outcome will will be self evident and will be successful.
0: That's yeah. That's a good point. I really uh, need to listen to that album then um, because for now I <laughs> my go-to Calibrate song is by Adele and it's just because mm. I heard Rolling in the Deep first on my, my, my first great uh, headphones I got and when, when I first got a preamp and something other than just listening with headphones on a, on a phone and yeah uh, uh, I, I really, really like the the mixing and mastering on that track, and so it's f- since then it's been my go to track to just get me into that space uh, of how I want things to sound, and or maybe differ from that. So um, yeah, but that's interesting. I'm gonna listen to yeah. that as well. And uh, um, but
1: that's that's a good strategy too in terms of calibrating your ears, relying on long term sense memory mm-hmm. is is pretty critical. Like the uh, the morning phase is one of my more recent kind of additions to my. Calibrate My Ears playlist, but I go back to, you know, listening to Pink Floyd albums and oh, even yeah. uh, the Chameleons UK is one of my favorite bands of all time. And uh, I've been listening to them since like 1987. So my sense memory for that is very consistent. And I know that it's actually very much a product of its time. And I would never want to make an album now that sounds like that, mm-hmm. but I know how it sounds. And so if it sounds really rich and bassy on a certain system, I know that my bass is, is way overhyped.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so so even, even things that aren't well engineered, if you know how they should sound based on your aggregate sense memory, that, that makes it a, totally a, a very valid uh, uh, reference track.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A uh, surprising moment for me was when I learned that the um, the composer for some of the Hotline Miami soundtracks was like mm-hmm. a seventeen-year-old in his basement on like cheap fifteen-dollar um, <laughs> monitor speakers, <laughs> and it sounds absolutely great. I still love that soundtrack. I mean, it's it's a bit rough, but it's it's fitting for the game, and it's I've I've been pumping it for for a while, especially for sports or something like that. And um, yeah, that really opened my mind to just like you said, you just need to know how something should sound on the system you you know or in the environment, you know, and if you have that kind of reference and yeah, you can adjust for that. And
1: totally, um, oh, yeah. and I love stories like that. I love the uh, DIY, uh, not just aesthetic, but but philosophy. And I just love, love, love hearing stories of people doing things that are really impactful with the barest, barest minimum, or even equipment or techniques people would consider wrong. I think that's how you, I think that that's, that's that's beginner's mind that so many of us lose the more yeah. we do this and you know having a level of naivete about what we do I think is important because then we we maintain that childlike wonder of sound and recording and not knowing what's happening and we just experiment and we play and um I think if you get too caught up in the science of it all um uh especially as you gain more and more experience your choices can get a lot more conservative
0: yeah yeah exactly if you have that frame frame around um that's maybe that's that will also be at some point your experience will also be that kind of constraint and you need someone new to show you that does something that you would consider wrong at the at the first moment so um that's a <laughs> it's a good point to to give to other people to always be open to try something that you think is totally wrong.
1: (laughs) Yep, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I love working with really uh, diverse teams and teams especially that have a wide age range because then you get the best of all worlds. You get the people with a lot of experience who have tried a bunch of things that didn't work and they can save you that headache. Mm -hmm. And then you have... younger people with a much, much fresher perspective on what could work or what might work. And I think that that combination, uh, if if you're able to get into a working or uh, artistic collaboration situation like that, I, I think that's just an incredibly rich way to, to uh, learn.
0: Yeah, and maybe connecting on that for um, tips for beginners or for people starting out, um, do you maybe remember what kind of things you struggled with the most starting out, especially for recording sounds or for, for making sounds and how you overcome it?
1: Thinking too much about the microphones. <laughs> it was a big one. <laughs> um, you know, and just committing to the the best thing that you can afford, even if that means that it's actually really inexpensive. Um, I've recorded and used sounds in projects recorded entirely with my phone because that's all i had with me and that's okay um it's you know what matters is how you stitch it all together and and having confidence in what you are trying to say with that sound i think that's far and away more important um and uh i think for for people just getting started uh it's it's just the idea of just get started and don't worry about the outcome. Just start recording, record everything. Listen back to everything you record, even if it's something you don't think you'll ever use again. And that's how I learned. Um, I had a Zoom H2, um, okay. which got so beaten up, the, the battery door got knocked off and you know it's all crusty and beaten up looking, but it still works. It's with a friend of mine in Copenhagen right now who's using it in his music. Um, And I, you know, to this day, I think all of us dread that, that moment of we're listening through the microphones on a recorder and we're, we're confident things are sounding great. And we're so in the moment we actually forget to hit record (laughs) because we're just listening uh, and monitoring. Um, So that's a classic thing to always keep, keep an eye out for. Um, But yeah, I think it's, it's just the repetition and the doing of it. And then as much as you're you're able, analyze the outcome and ask yourself, with what I have, which can be very little, mm-hmm. if this didn't come out the way I wanted it to, what might I do to tilt success in my favor the next time? And do that every time you go out, reflect every time on every recording that you make. And that was really what helped me a lot when I first uh, first got started. I think the other thing that people need to remember is how unbelievably small the world of post-production audio game audio and music are um, because when you have a question you might be following someone on social media who maybe knows the answer and you might figure oh, they're really busy professionals there's no way they would ever respond to me Let me tell you, just try it. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, your success rate is going to be way, way higher than you might ever possibly think because we're all creative people and we're all super passionate about what we do. And the last thing that most of us would ever want to do would be to be precious with knowledge. And we want to share, we want to share our passion and we would love to help folks who are earlier in their journey than us, uh, save them from some of the headaches that we went through and some of our missteps. So reach out and and contact your heroes. I think you'll be constantly surprised how frequently you will get a, uh, a respectful and very informative response.
0: That's, that's very good advice. And I can attest that that's true. (laughs) I was also very surprised (laughs) of some of the contacts I've made just in on a whim. Um, Yeah. So, I think for now, I'm all out of questions. So the only thing that's left is, uh, do you want to plug anything? Um, of course, your new album, because everyone should listen to it. I find it's absolutely amazing. Um, if you have anything else, feel free to shout out.
1: Sure. So my personal website is noisejockey.net. And if anyone wants to check out my music, that is available at nathanmoody.bandcamp.com.
0: Okay. So thanks and um, yeah, have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. This was a blast.
0: for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting on patreon.com slash fieldandfoley or ko field and fieldandfoley, where you gain early access to episodes in lossless format and can submit questions for our guests. Thank you for listening.